Hello and welcome to the Ducks Never Waver Lunch Break, where you get food for thought and can rejuvenate to sally forth. She's Megan the sister. He's Edwin the brother. And today we are talking about... Culture Care, Part 2. T.S. Eliot writes, If we take culture seriously, we see that a people does not need merely enough to eat, but a proper and particular cuisine... Culture may even be described simply as that which makes life worth living. What T.S. Eliot is bringing to light here is that culture is not a territory to be won or lost, as in the great culture wars that many people talk about, but rather it is something that we are to be stewards of and care for. If you don't like the culture of something, then you have to be the culture to change it. Yeah, you got you got to make your own culture and try to get people to rally around you. I mean, you could maybe start by opening a small Etsy shop that makes really beautiful handmade items and that could lead into a amazing distiller full of information social media campaign. And then if you're really ambitious, maybe you could start a podcast that could discuss things about culture. I don't know. Does that seem crazy? Could, could somebody do that? I think somebody could do that if they're really highly motivated. It takes a lot of work, though. Mm. But, like, not so much work that you would complain about it. It's mostly fun. <laughs> it's mostly playtime with a, with a twinge of a pain and agony. Mostly just panic, raw panic, because <laughs> you don't know what to say. <laughs> Run away! <laughs> When it comes to being part of the culture, I think this is something that Christians struggle with because oftentimes we think, well, how am I going to talk to my neighbor if I can't relate to certain things, certain pop culture things that they know about? And at the same time, oftentimes we get stuck on some trivial things. The classic example is mowing your grass on Sunday. I I feel like that is the biggest complaint that some Christians have against other Christians and that non-Christians have against Christians is the one interaction I had with them is they said, you shouldn't be cutting your grass on Sunday. It's, it's a little bit of a dead horse to beat upon, but obviously that's not the way to go about things. The best opportunity would be on Saturday while you're mowing your lawn to see your neighbor and say, hey, I'm cutting my lawn right now. Would you mind if I help you cut it? You know, you can help them out, and then they don't end up mowing their lawn on Sunday. Like, that would be nice if you actually care about them mowing their lawn on Sunday. Otherwise, you're just kind of being a snooty prick. Yeah, and uh, I think a lot about the, um, the, the psychology thought of cognitive behavioral therapy, where... You have a behavior, and a lot of times you have to go back to the thoughts or the feelings of the behavior, not just try to hunker down and change the behavior. But when you start processing the thoughts and the feelings around that behavior, you actually make more progress. So just saying, stop doing that, is not going to help, but saying this is why you shouldn't do that, or this is a better way of doing things, this, then you're changing the thought around it, so then the behavior will automatically change. Maybe someday we'll do a, a whole uh, episode on CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Which I know nothing about. And that's another 
struggle that Christians have with culture is easy to sit back and just say, oh, that's bad. We're not them. We're not the world. That's just bad stuff out there. And this book, Culture Care, is nice because in the back of the book, it has questions, four or five questions on each chapter. And you can use this book to have a nice discussion group about so on. Kind of like what we're doing here. I'm sure it would be even more beneficial to you if you actually did that. Made a community. Yeah, made a community. Oh, man, it's like we just talked about that. <laughs> so one of the questions is, what is the appeal of choosing opposition rather than sharing? What would the shift towards sharing require? How could art help facilitate such a shift? So that's talking about these culture wars, too. Like, we oftentimes, that's the opposition. You just say that culture is bad. But what if we were to share our own culture? What would that change? Yeah, and, and be free to be a different culture. You don't have to just take what's already made and put a Christian spin on it or, you know, just tweak it slightly. But to actually make something new, you you can't be selfish. I think it's, it's very easy to say, oh, I don't like this, and oh, that's bad, and oh, this is better. But to actually make something, to actually build something, um, whether uh, a movement of, of thought, like it can be a thought that you're making, or it can be a, an actual tangible item, you have to empty yourself. You have to be giving. And a lot of times we don't want to do that. We just want to take. Which is why none of you can have this podcast. It's mine. So, of course, if we're going to change from opposition to sharing, we have to have something to share. And the best thing we can share is the gospel, of course. Well, how do you do that? Well, if we're not individualistic, but we're rather collection points of other people, then the epitome of that would be the church. And that would be the place to grow a strong culture and then from that point to share it, which can get into evangelism and so on. But I think this book is talking about small things. This book started from a bouquet of flowers. So I think for us to jump right away into and now get out there and start preaching on the street corner, that's not really the point of the book. The point of the book is that helping somebody you know even as small as helping them by bringing them a bouquet of flowers can actually have very large positive effects. And that's what we're going to, to delve into a little bit here is that just because you don't see the end result of your actions, if they are coming from the proper place, if they are coming from that place directed towards God, they will go beyond what you could even possibly envision. It's the whole butterfly effect. So don't become disparaging because you're like, oh, this is just one little sad casserole given to somebody who just had a baby. Like, yeah, it's just a casserole. But what's behind the casserole is what's actually important. Or it's like the layers of a casserole. You just keep digging deeper, and you're like, what is this thing down here? And it's cheese, and then you're so happy. <laughs> but I don't think that had anything to do with it, but I just want to throw that in there. Put more cheese in casseroles. Or, you know, <laughs> we could try to move beyond casseroles, because, you know, not everybody loves casseroles. 
or the fact that you know if in the midwest if you're moving if, if you're in need of food and people are trying to help you out the one thing people will bring is a casserole which is great wonderful things we say small things great effects how about a small thing is for you to dig a little deeper and and, and learn to make fried chicken mm. and then share that wonderful gift that you developed that generative moment with somebody else because they'll appreciate that even so much more after their third or fifth casserole just a little tip yeah and a, another small thing that you can do is is being thankful like writing a thank you card like that's something that is really really tiny most thank you cards are very small we should oh we should make big ones really big thank you cards I don't know. I think there's a business in that. Just massive thank you cards. Like the big checks. Yes. Big, big checks, but with thankfulness on it. No, but, but that can be, <laughs> that, but no, like every time I've received a thank you card, I'm like, whoa, I want to go do more, which is generative, right? Like that's, that's great. Like that's that your thankfulness, like a small little token of thankfulness or even just saying it can start generative moments like those small things really do matter whenever i get a thank you card i want to write a thank you card thanking for the thank you card and it's this endless loop of thank you cards so that might be a closed loop though which might not be very good but sometimes like (laughs) it's funny because oftentimes you'll do something and you think man i'm gonna get thank this is like this is a big job i got i you know i did good there and it's not really realized and then you do something that you didn't think about at all and then you get thank you cards and somebody says thank you afterwards and like oh wow that made a big difference to them and it was like no no skin off no, my nose skin off my nose i was gonna skin <laughs> off my back and that doesn't work <laughs> mixing some sayings here but that that's the way thankfulness goes and grows. You, mm-hmm. Once you realize how good it feels to be thanked, you can go out and thank other people. Yeah, and remember that thanks is gratuitous. Like it's it's not a given. And you don't you don't do things for the thanks, but when you do receive it, you you really see how what you do matters and how it it is seen. And even if you if you never get thanked, like maybe you've never gotten a thank you card. You know what? That's okay because God sees what you what you do, and that's really what what you need to focus on. But thanks is a small thing that we can do that can propel people forward. Appreciation of the depths of beauty is a condition of our physical, mental, and spiritual health, and of our physical, mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual maturity. Our maturity level sets a limit on the quality and expressiveness of the work we can produce. We often think of great artists, musicians, and writers, those who have demonstrated the ability to express beauty, as great souls. Wesley Hill, a professor at Trinity School for Ministry, recently told a story, it may be legend, about a Yale student working under the great Old Testament scholar Brevard Childs. The student was unhappy with his grade and asked how he could improve his next essay. Childs replied, become a deeper person. Oof, I would not have liked to hear that as a student. (laughs) And becoming a deeper person is something that we can be engaged in all the time. 
like right now. This podcast is for begging me to become deeper people. This is why we're doing it. And if you enjoy it and you're enjoying this journey that we're on, great. Hopefully you get something out of it. But we're the ones who learn the most from this. Putting this podcast together, reading this book, trying to come up with notes, organizing it, and then presenting it. That's how we become deeper people, by actually doing something. So hopefully, if you're listening to this, you can take some encouragement that you can struggle forward by actually doing something. And it doesn't need to be perfect right away. I'm sure in five years, hopefully we'll still be doing this, and we can revisit this book and do a way better job. Maybe we can even have um, Fujimura on as a guest. That would be fantastic. Then he could actually tell us what we're missing, what, what takeaways we should have gotten from this. So that's what I have to look forward to as becoming a deeper person. The, there's only improvement, but the improvement comes through struggle. And we've talked about in a previous episode about growing pains. This is, this is growing that muscle of maturity by going out, studying, researching, and working towards something. So you can do it too. If, if us two can do it, you can do it. Chapter 5 is talking about soul care and about how to become a deeper person. And in the back of the book, one of the questions is, what are three cultural problems that you see in your community? So, Megan, go ahead. Yeah, I, I came up with, with some things. And uh, the, the problem with, with a lot of these kinds of answers is that they kind of bleed into one another. Uh, but the first thing I have is impatience or cheapness. And it's, it's uh, again, a circle that I came up with because I, I love thinking in circles. And, or just endless spirals. That's probably more accurate in my brain. But uh, the, the circle is you have a fear of pain. You want immediate gratification. But if you have immediate gratification, you devalue beauty. And once you devalue beauty, you can't find it. And the second one I have is escapism. That we've become, and I, I think this is because we've devalued beauty, We've become emotionally stunted, and we look for distraction from the problem instead of looking for wisdom to deal with it. Again, that maturity. We look for things below or at our level, not reaching higher for growth. And the last one is sentimentality, which kind of combines all of what I, I just said. Um, but the soul is lost and can't find meaning so it relies on sentimentality, this, this drummed-up emotion over just small things, just like not even like a, a real emotion. It's just like, oh, you see a puppy. Aw. It's not your puppy. It's not a relationship. It's just you see a cute dog and that you drum up this emotion over it. And I would say with all of this, people know that they're hungry. All of this comes back to like where we are searching for something, but... Oh, this is dumb that I wrote. Anyways, uh, people know that they're hungry, but they're just looking for cookies instead of steak tacos. And we all know that steak tacos are actually way better than cookies. So, but <laughs> I don't know why I wrote that. I must have been hungry. For steak tacos. And now I'm really hungry for steak tacos. Thankfully, my wife makes good steak tacos. So. 
Can I come over? Only if you behave yourself this time. I'll try. But would you agree with that? Would you would you add your or do you have a different three? I think it's interesting because I think with the question, it can be taken very specific and you went very broad with almost some generic North American problems. And I think these are really deeply rooted issues that people rage against and yet are very much a part of. It It is funny to me the amount of people who rage against materialism and enjoy one-day shipping. And it you can't have it both ways because Amazon is a model for dealing with con- consumer consumption. It's like they, they perfected it. They figured out a way to give people exactly what they want exactly when they want it. And that is that immediate gratification that you were talking about. The problem is, is whenever you talk about like, oh, everybody's just, just looking for immediate gratification, is like you sound very noble until you realize, well, yeah, that's kind of what I do too. Most of the time when I'm hungry, I just go and eat. I don't like say, oh, I'm hungry. Well, I'll eat tomorrow. I mean, you could. Your body's perfectly capable of it unless you have a medical you know, issue. Most of us can go a day without eating. Now, I'm not recommending that you do, but that immediate gratification that we have in our first world country does tend to devalue beauty because everybody knows that that steak taco that you eat after, you know, a whole day of work and not eating, like say 10 hours and you didn't get lunch because you had to hustle and move, that, that steak taco tastes better than any other steak taco you ever had because that that struggle made beauty even more beautiful because you knew the lack of food. So, so what that is is you can realize that the absence of that beauty is so much worse than you, like you realized how horrible the absence of food is and now the beauty of having good food is made even greater. Even though we sometimes struggle to find beauty, Beauty is the difference between flourishing and survival. That when we are only survival focused, we don't worry about beauty anymore. And a lot of times we just go into that survival mode, whereas actually seeking to flourish, seeking that beauty is going to bring you out of that survival mode. And you have to recognize that that beauty then... Once you get out of survival mode, that beauty is what's going to make things last. It's going to make... Your appreciation for beauty is going to make a lasting impression upon you. So that's that's one way. But also, if you were to make something beautiful, that is going to stand the test of time much more than something that is rudimentary. So, case in point, a plain three-legged stool will not last very long. Because nobody's going to take care for it. But if you make a luxurious throne, a thousand years from now, it will be in a, a museum and people will look at it with wonder. Why? Do you both sit on them? They, they do the same thing. But the beauty of the one over the other is what's going to make it last. 
Yeah, he, he talks about the philosopher Roger Scruton. And Roger Scruton defines beauty in part as that which repays contemplation for its own sake. And he claims that beauty and utility conflict only in the short run. Beauty may not be practical, but he has noted that when people neglect beauty, they produce ultimately useless things. Focusing on mere function actually will consign an object to oblivion. Beauty, Scruton says, is what makes things last. And now we get to my favorite part, which is chapter seven, where he talks about leadership from the margins, is, is what he, he titles it. And he talks about being a border stalker or the old English word, murstapas, which I think is so cool. I mean, it's from Beowulf, and then he talks about Lord of the Rings. So I'm like, eh, you win. You know, you got Beowulf and Lord of the Rings in this chapter, and he later talks about, you know, Mahalia Jackson. So I'm like, yeah, you, you kind of, you kind of got me there. But he's, he's talking about how artists are on the fringes, are on the outside, and that they are often uncomfortable with being in groups, and they feel like they don't fit in, and that they're on the outside but Fujimura says that that's a good thing and that's something that I really resonated when I when I first read this book that it really helped put into place things that I was feeling that was like why do I feel this weird break against me and other people why do I see things differently why do I don't feel like I fit in. And then as soon as he said, like, that's okay that you don't fit in. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't have to. I can fit in by not fitting in. Like, that That works great. And I don't know why I needed to hear that to be able to do that, but I, it was it was very helpful for me. And uh, I don't know. What did, what did you think of that part? Did you, did you find that helpful? So I thought it was very interesting that artists as personified as the border walkers or the border stalkers that one what are you doing on the outside well you have a great advantage point to warn others of invaders coming right you're you're the first ones to notice something from the outside coming in but because you're also on the outside the fringes of your community you have a better vantage point to be detached and look from the outside in and see internal problems. So that's why you don't, you're part of the community, but you can look in and see what nobody else is seeing. You can see all the assumptions. You can see all the problems. And you can warn people of that. That's, that's that whole idea of, of a prophet. What they do, what Ezekiel does, is he's kind of crazy. He's like that in the book of um, Ezekiel. He's doing all these weird prophecies, and people come to him like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "This is this is what's happening. This is what is happening on the outside, and this is what's happening on the inside." And because you're in that in between space, you can see it. Yeah, and, and you can you can use that, like you said, you can use that to heal the community looking in, and you also are the guard. You're, you're protecting from outside invaders. 
And he he uses the example of the character Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings as one, that he is on the fringes, he's outside, uh, the hobbits don't trust him at first, and but he's the, he's the king, like he's the, the one bringing all these nations together. He is in this role of, of leadership. And one thing that really struck me this, this last time reading it is that you know who he is because he heals. You know that he is the king because he heals. And I think that's a very important thing for artists to keep in mind that you are to bring healing, to bring sight to people, that you're supposed to bring a, a perspective of beauty that people are missing. Which is possibly why um, our culture suffers so much because of what we talked about earlier is there's been in art. So the artists who have been culturally accepted have been devaluing art because they've no, they've turned their backs on beauty for many different reasons. And when you create art that isn't beautiful, you no longer can be the eyes of change, especially good change, in your community. Also the trend of what I call the essay art, where you you have this... I'm, I'm all for like explaining art, but uh, when you have like, this is... This piece of art is expounding on this political message. And this is, you know, some point of view that I'm, I'm bringing forth. And I, I don't really think that's art then. Every artist brings their point of view, but I shouldn't have to read your essay expounding on your point of view. Like it, it should come out in your painting and it shouldn't be pushing some political idea that everybody else is thinking that's not really what you're you're there for you're there to bring out human truths not some ideal that you're you're pushing when t.s Eliot was asked what does his poem the wasteland mean he replied if i could tell you what it meant i would write an essay and that's exactly what megan's driving at here is if you actually want to just tell people what you mean then write an essay if you want to bring together a worldview, but also project beauty into the world and something that is greater than its parts. So like a, a painting is more than just canvas and pigment and oils. It's something greater than that. Then, then create a painting. Then, then write poetry. But if all you want to do is discuss current politics, then go write an essay. Exactly. And that's, that's, I think, also gets back to the maturity levels that you're, you're trying to bring out this thing that means many, many things, that has many layers to it. Whereas if you can just write three sentences on what it means, you're, you're missing the point. It's, it's not a mature piece. It's, yeah, it's, it's simplistic. What are some border stalkers that you've seen in in art it can be an actual person it can be a fictional character movies books do you can you can you think of any border stalkers out there uh in the movie uh quickly down under quickly is a border stalker he's uh between two groups he's the one who can come from the outside and and see what's actually going on and make a decision. And then he becomes a leader. 
when it comes to to people who are border stalkers. I think actually Grant, I've, I read part of his autobiography. Grant was a little bit of a border stalker because people didn't really like him, and yet he came in when the chips were down and he made the Union Army work. So, I mean, I'll have to revisit that. If, if there's any big history buffs who know a lot about Grant and correct me, I, I'll bow out. But that he, he's somebody who comes to mind for some reason. How about you? I think of the John Ford movie, The Searchers, where the, the main character, Ethan Edwards, is definitely a border stalker. And in this case, I don't, I don't think just because you're a border stalker, you're going to be a, a nasty, crusty person. Uh, but in this case, he, he is. But he is the one that is necessary to bring peace and community. He is the one preserving it and building it. But in the end, he can't be a part of it. So there's that dissonance of the builder, but you can't live in it. And I, the, I think the importance, like the thing to remember here with border stalkers is you have to have a border to stalk. You have to have something to protect. You have to have a community. So you can't just say, again, you can't be an island. You or an island. Uh, you can't be, you have to have a community to serve. And you have to love that community. So I, I think that's often we just want to be our little artist island and, you know, just have our little cocoon and be like, look at me. I'm, you know, so aloof. And, you Nobody know, understands me. Yeah, exactly. No, no one understands me. I am so deep. And so, but it's like, no, if you're not serving someone, it, it has no point. And that gets back to that, that Roger Scruton point that beauty makes things last, but also it's the community that you serve that makes things last. And Fujimura goes into a lot how the church preserves things and passes things on. And again, it's all about laying those seeds. Another interesting film and I, I, I'll see if you agree with this, with whether they're, they're border stalkers or not, is the film Big Night, where you have this, these, these brothers who own a restaurant. And one, the oldest, Primo, is the artist. He is this spectacular chef. Like, it's unbelievable how good he is. And then you have his, his younger brother, Secundo. And the struggle of the film is where does Secundo fit in? Like Primo knows that he has a gift, but he's kind of a loot. Like he doesn't really understand the world of business. He just wants to feed everyone. He will take paintings instead of money. And Secundo's in this awkward place of, I love my brother. I love his gift, but... This is America. We just immigrated. We have to make it big. This is the American dream. And so he is wandering around trying to figure out what, what's my place in life. And in the end, he realizes that I have to protect this gift. So it's kind of like two, there, there are two halves of a, of, of a whole. That doesn't make any sense. There they're one person. You can look at the movie as they're one person. And the one person has the gift, but then he has to figure out, do I cheapen my gift? 
do I just do what people want me to do? But then in the end, he's like, no, it's okay for me to be on the outside. It's okay for me to protect my gift. It's okay for me to serve the people who appreciate me. And we can, that taking the paintings instead of money is meaningful. That is the dream. That is good. Yeah, I think that actually ties into where we're moving next with this discussion. Thank you for listening to part two of Culture Care. Come back next week to hear what twists and turns our discussion takes in our conclusion of Culture Care. We hope you have enjoyed the Ducks Never Waver lunch break. If you would like to fill your senses with more Ducks Never Waver goodness, you can feast your eyeballs on Instagram and Facebook. Touch some of our beautiful pieces that we will ship right to your door by ordering them through Etsy. Or you can continue hearing us on this magnificent culmination of auditory recordation. Donation buckets are in the description for you to invest in the betterment of this podcast. We will work diligently to read and present interesting topics. Your hard-earned money will be joyously and gratefully spent to improve your lunch break. Want to keep your hard-earned money? And who doesn't? You can still support us and yourself by rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this here podcast with all the other ducks in your life. Stay quacky.